For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined for the 200th time by Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky from Longform. Uh, oh, yeah! 200. Was that, were you simulating crowd noise? That was the crowd, that's the live studio audience <laughs> we brought in for this 200 episode spectacular. What What have we done special for our 200th episode, Aaron? Okay, we need to come clean with the with the listeners. We can no longer, uh, we can no longer dupe them. Uh, we did not realize until we arrived here this afternoon that this was the 200th episode. Is that correct? I did not know. It's correct for me. If you told me it was the 300th, I also would have believed that. Uh, at the 100th episode, we did a clips show, but we have not done a clips show. <laughs> Max, are you crying? <laughs> no. Uh, what, what should we do? What, should, what, what can we do here? Uh, let's just do like the incredibly lazy version of a clip show. I love it. I love it. So, all right. Uh, I think that what we did last time was like you guys, we all went back and listened to all of our interviews and tried to find our favorite moments. But this time, just we've each done like, you know, somewhere around 33 of these podcasts. Which one was the favorite that you guys did? I'm going to go with, for myself, uh, Margot Jefferson. I really enjoyed that interview. I'm going to go with uh, Rukmini Kalamaki, which uh, is both my favorite interview and I believe the longest interview in the history of this podcast, a record that I'd like to see you guys challenge. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Renata Adler. Oh, Renata Adler great. was that's also great. right in that, uh, I think it was like right before, right after Margot Jefferson. But uh, yeah, that one that one has stuck with me. Okay, There's well, our clip show. That, wow. Those were some great- <laughs> You're welcome, you guys. I really dug those clips you guys played. Uh, but this is this show is not simply a uh, joke about the 200th episode. It is itself an episode. Who did you interview, Evan? I interviewed uh, Jack Hitt, who I think is a great a guest for the 200th episode. He's a magazine writer. You probably know him from all sorts of uh, articles for Harper's, New York Times Magazine. I, in particular, love his stories for This American Life. They are the best, and he's a hilarious and fascinating person. Seems like a challenge to even find like where to start with someone like Jack Hitt, who has produced so much. It was a challenge, but I faced up to that challenge, Max. <laughs> yeah. wow. Well, if you've done this two hundred times, you uh, you start figuring. Two hundred times. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a vet. Uh, as always, we are sponsored by Mailchimp. Thanks for coming along for the ride, Mailchimp. We thank you. Here's Evan with Jack Hitt. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. You know, normally I try to read everyone's stories, even their books, and uh, and then pick out a few, and then I'm going to hit this, I'm going to try to hit this. You have too many stories for me to take that approach, so <laughs> I'm not even sure what approach to take. But I will start by saying that I first became aware of your work when I was working as a fact checker at Wired, mm-hmm. and you did a piece for Wired that was about 
finding God through like electromagnetic waves, basically. Sure. As I recall. Persinger. Yeah, Persinger. Yeah. It's this scientist like putting you in this sort of yeah, helmet. This, this Canadian scientist. When I was working at Wired and the story came through, there was some sort of like, we've got Jack Hitt writing mm-hmm. for the magazine. And I was like, who's Jack Hitt? I don't know who Jack Hitt is. And someone said, you don't know who Jack Hitt is. Go listen to Fiasco. Mm. And that was the, my first introduction to, I think, your mm-hmm. work was like someone saying, you have to go find this thing and listen to it, which at the time was on like a CD, like Best of This American Life. Like, I'm not even sure they were all on the website at that point. Some of those This American Life stories, they've made me think when I hear them, are you a person that more interesting things happen to you than other people? Or are you a person that just recognizes stories when they happen? Okay, that's so funny you mentioned that. So Ira Glass and I have had this conversation over, you know, many years. Uh-huh. We used to be on sort of opposite sides of this, but I think now I, I, I'm kind of on his side, which is that, you know, certain people just see elements of things that are potentially part of stories and store them away. And I know this is true because uh, one of the stories I did for This American Life, the super story, right? That's a good example of like an extraordinary thing that seems to be happening to you. Right. And you would think, like, that's an extraordinary thing that's happening to me, except that that story didn't exist, except that I saved up pieces of that story for years and never told it. So just a review. It's a story about I, I lived in an apartment in the in the 80s and 90s in New York on the Upper West Side, and I had a crazy super. And, and there's a series of turns to this story. It just gets crazier and crazier. And what you have to know is that, that like that didn't happen all at once, right? I mean, it happened over 15 years, that uh-huh. story. Um, and and so Bob's crazy, my super's crazy behavior was just one of the many stories that anybody in New York tells. Like it, everyone in New York has a crazy super story. And for years, I was just one of those people who had a crazy super story, right? Couldn't fix the toilet, did this, blew out a window, something, you know. And the crazy super, you know, you go back to, you know, those sitcoms in the 70s. It was always like the crazy super. For some reason, that job (laughs) in an apartment building seems to attract very incompetent plumbers. And then there was this um, uh, crime that happened, which is my landlord got implicated in a murder and convicted of it and went to prison, still is in jail now. And Bob was one of the people who testified against him. And so we all read that. That was amazing. And Alan went to jail. We knew the landlord. He went to jail. You know, I moved out of town. And 10 years later, just by chance, I'm talking to a Treasury secretary official, like the number two guy in Treasury. I'm working on a money laundering story for the New York Times. And this guy tells me, the Treasury secretary guy says, you know, um, if you're going to do money laundering, then you have to talk to this guy named John Moscow. He was a prosecutor in New York. It's a great character's name yeah. also, and John he, you Moscow. Know, yeah, when I when I performed this on stage, I always say like, you know, and so I called John Moscow, who sounded just like a guy named John Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he does. I mean, you call him up and he is, you know, he's right out of Dragnet. We were going to be talking about money laundering, remember? And Nauru and the collapse of the Russian economy, and this is uh, this is in the late 90s. And you know how it is with an interview. You you open it up just like this. You're just chatting about all kinds of things, life, what's going on, where do you live, who are you, what town, where did you grow up, you know, you just all the identifiers, you know. So we just started chatting. And just, you know, no big deal. I said, so have you always prosecuted financial crime? And John Moscow said, good God, no. 
I used to handle homicide in Manhattan back during the crime wave. And I said, oh, yeah. I lived in Manhattan back during the crime wave, 80s, 90s. In fact, I was kind of part of it. I said, I lived in this building, and we had this crazy landlord in the super was involved in this kind of like, uh, uh, you know, hired shooting. And John Moscow on the phone says, Alan Stern, West 99th Street? I said, yeah. How'd you know? He said, I'm the guy who put him behind bars. And then that started a conversation. But see, that would, I don't, you haven't yeah. said which side I was on, which side you were on, but so that I was, would fuel the, yeah. the coincidence side almost. Although, I don't know, I guess it could cut both ways. Well, no, so I, I do think, I mean, I think in some ways this coincidence and serendipity always plays a part. But, but I think storytellers just collect string. I, co- you know, I, I collect string all the time, and, and most of it never goes anywhere, but I know it's there, and I know how to get to it, you know? <laughs> and so, like, when this happened, I was like, oh. So we started chatting, and I still, you know, know Moscow and still talk to him. Um, and that this led to this whole second act to the story. So now I, the first act is just your boring old, not boring, but, you know, your entertaining, slightly entertaining super story, which everybody has. And then all of a sudden I had this second act where he starts unpacking Bob's real history. And that turns out to be phenomenal, better than any super story I'd ever heard, right, or told. Uh, and then it just got crazier and crazier from there. And I think part of it, too, is this, is this I just enjoy, uh, I like talking to people, I like asking them stuff. Yeah. Uh, even about stuff that's not part of the interview, you know? And that's where a lot of string happens. That's where a lot of interesting aspects of any, whether it pertains to the story or not, or leads to another story. Often that's where you get your next story, Yeah, is in the incidental chatter that you're having with somebody. And you said you've come around to Ira's perspective, so how did that? Actually, it's almost by negative inference, which is the sense that I have now encountered enough people in my life who don't collect string, Uh and who don't put stories together. And they they find that the people who do, they hold almost in suspicion. Right. I mean, I have had people say, like, how is it that so many things like that happen to you? Yeah. And I was like, I think they're happening to all of us. I just think I'm paying attention (laughs) and my friends are paying attention, you know, and that's really it. It's not like there's some big magic happening. Uh You know, there were a lot of other people in that building. Who live with Bob, too. Yeah. Right? That story was available to every one of them. So one of the producers at This American Life called me. This is right after I had talked to Moscow, and I would researched all this and whatnot. I would occasionally get a call from a producer, like, we're working on a show about X, mm-hmm. and, and do you have any, you know, stories that you're working on that might, you know, uh, work in this case? And it's so funny, talking about coincidence, because, <laughs> like, uh, you know, Sarah Koenig or somebody called me and said, like, we're working on a story about supers. Like building supers. Do you have anything? I'm like, you're kidding. <laughs> they must have thought you were making it up at first. I thought they were making it up. It's like, did someone tell you this? Do you have a super story? I was like, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about like where that mm-hmm. impulse comes from. Because I know from, from listening to a lot, like Charleston kind of weaves in mm-hmm. and out of uh, your work at different times. And I so I know that you grew up there. When you were a kid, did you come out of like a storytelling family or a storytelling tradition? Can you pinpoint a place where this impulse in you derives? Oh, yeah. So there were five kids and two parents when I was a little kid, little boy. Uh, I have three sisters and a brother. 
uh, a mother and a father at the time, and we were all storytellers. My father had this sort of like tradition every afternoon. He was a newspaper editor. Mm -hmm. He was the newspaper editor in Charleston at the Evening Post. And he would come home every day to 38 Gibbs Street, and he would fix a drink for his wife, and they would go into this back room that they had, and for a half an hour they would talk. And we were not, no one was allowed in there. It was parent time. It was daddy and mommy time. And we didn't know what went on in there. And all they did was talk. But it was a very important moment for them. They, they, that was one of their best points of their day, yeah. right? The two would just sort of unpack what happened. Uh, you know, they had an old-fashioned marriage, but my mom would explain what was happening in her world, and my father would explain what was happening in his. And they both kind of liked each other. Strange. It was strange in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, and then after that, we they'd come out and we'd all have dinner. And then whatever conversation was happening in there would then be opened up to the table. And all of us would talk about our day, right? And it was kind of competitive storytelling. You couldn't just say, oh, I went to school, I did this, this happened, and then that happened. That wouldn't, that wouldn't wash. You had to tell some really incredible, you know, had to be a great story. Mm -hmm. So stories would happen at the table. And I remember my sister Joni really, you know, scored big because she had kind of run off for a while at one point and gone to San Francisco and had come back with stories of, you know, this is in the 60s, you know, hippies and Haight-Ashbury and living there and marijuana. And, you know, I think dad had to go look it up, you know. Um, <laughs> it's and... tough to top that if you're just going to school every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm much younger than, I'm a mistake. I'm much younger than my siblings. And this was an incredible story. And so I remember telling some story where I think I made fun of somebody's speech impediment or something in the third grade. And there was just, it was crickets at the table. And I realized, I mean, I could, it was the first time I felt flop sweat. I might have been seven years old, you know. <laughs> and I just remember looking around the table and no, everyone was kind of mortified. And my sister Joni said, if you're going to tell a story at this table, it's got to be a lot better than that boy. And I, I didn't say a word for a year, I don't think. I mean, I, it felt like that. Wow. I was like, okay, if I'm going to come to this table and, and, and crack this audience, it's going to have to be something really good, and I can't make fun of people. Did you want to be a reporter? I did not. I, I didn't at all, and I avoided that uh, as assiduously as possible. I was a Latin major, a complet major, but Latin was my thing in college. And, uh, and when I got out, I, I had lived such an isolated and monastic life in college that I, I thought maybe Latin translators was a thing that could – earned me money. And uh, I moved to San Francisco to discover that that was not a job description of any kind. And so I wound up working for a bank, Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, back when it was a legitimate enterprise. Oh. And, and that was terrible. I really didn't like it. Um, so I, I, I wrote a letter to every newspaper editor in the Northwest this is my little Genesis story, so yeah, here it is. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote a letter, and I, I all I remember, I had no idea how to write this letter. All I wanted to say was, I, I, I don't want to work in banks. That's all, that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> I thought it might be more fun to work in a newspaper. So I wrote these letters. I remember my brother-in-law gave me this key phrase. He said, like, you know, tell them that, you know, while you have no experience, comma, printer's ink courses through the family veins. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I stole that line. <laughs> my last act of plagiarism. And I sent this letter out to everybody in Seattle down to L.A. I wanted to stay on the West Coast because I was trying to stay far away from my family. Uh -huh. So my family has a 
in South Carolina, I'm from South Carolina, and there's a rich hit tradition of being in newspapers. My grandmother was a newspaper editor, my grandfather, my father, my brother. Okay. So it really does course through the veins. It really does. That was not a that was not an exaggeration. My mother, my father uh, wrote a sports column called Hits, Runs, and Errors. That's right. <laughs> and my mother wrote a society column called Gather Ye Rosebuds. And so the two columnists met <laughs> and fell in love. And and had us, so that is the story. It's a media power couple. It really was, and, and it's time. Yeah, you know, '30s Charleston. This is uh, this was a, a media power couple. That's right. So I wrote this letter and sent it to every newspaper in the in the Northwest. And the only person who wrote me back, well, actually, two editors wrote me back, but only one had sort of like anything like a uh, an enthusiastic response. And that was a guy named Raymond Chandler, and at the Bend Bulletin in Oregon, and he said. Interesting letter. If you're ever passing through Ben, give me a call, and I'll take you out to lunch. That was the letter. And so I got on a Greyhound bus about two weeks later and called him up the day before I left and said, I just happened to be passing through (laughs) Bend, Oregon. Total lie. But got on the bus and Greyhound my way up to Bend, and we went out to lunch, and we had a great lunch. It was full of bizarre conversations. The only thing I remember is that he, I I had told him that my father had memorized the dictionary by the time he was 20 and that I was attempting it myself and that I was halfway through. (laughs) That's true. That is true. That is true. And he said, oh, really? I've memorized the dictionary. I said, okay. And he said, "Uh, what's your favorite word? And it just so happened I did have one at the time. I said, oh, my favorite word is calipigious. And he said, wow, I don't even know that word. And I said, well, it's a beautiful word. I said, but the best the best definition is the OED, which defines calipigious as meaning having or possessing an aesthetically pleasing buttocks. <laughs> a nice ass. I said, yes, there's a word for that. And he thought that was fantastic. And then at the end of the lunch, he said, it was great meeting you. But we have no jobs. But I enjoyed our conversation. And with that, I, was, I walked back to the bus station and crestfallen, climbed aboard and went back to San Francisco and to Freddie Mac. And then I, get, I think about two months later, uh, the phone rang at like 6 o'clock in the morning. And it was uh, Dick Ronick, the managing editor, who uh, asked me if uh, I wanted a job. It was like a Thursday. And he said, if you want a job, we have an op- opening to cover weddings. Mm. And then you can move on up from there. You have to come here by Monday. I said, I'll be, I'll be there. And I walked into Freddie Mac and quit and packed up all my boxes and went to the post office and mailed all my stuff to Bend, Oregon, General Delivery, and got it back on the Greyhound bus. What's the wedding scene like up there in Bend, Oregon? Well, I, I can still spell words like tool and crinoline and stuff like that. And uh, But, I, I you know, Chandler's theory was that once you publish a, a wedding announcement in a paper, then you have that reader subscribing for life, right? So this is small town subscription building. Uh, so there was a reporter assigned to every wedding mm-hmm. in Bend, Oregon for wow. that time. Yeah. And I would go. I would go to weddings and stuff. I mean, we wrote about them the way the Times does now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they lifted that idea. <laughs> um, but I only did that for a couple of weeks, and then I and then I started writing stories. And you know, I was a Latin 
major, right, and Latin scholar. So I didn't know anything about writing newspaper stories. And um, one of my favorite moments of my first story that was not a wedding story, I was sent to the Prineville School Board budget meeting. And I, it was eight hours long. It was three guys sitting in a room, and they were discussing things like, how many number two lead Eberhard pencils are we going to buy, you know? And I can get a gross of these for, you know, $2.40 out of Eugene. You know, it was this kind of conversation. Really nuts and bolts, you know, nothing. Mm-hmm. But I was so nervous about covering this first story. I wrote down every word that these people said, everything they said. Like there was a ramp that they had to put into a sidewalk and it was a whole thing about like how to crack up the cement or the sidewalk and then who was going to lay the concrete. And Bob can get us a bag of concrete at $4.80 a ton, you know, whatever. <laughs> so. And and I'm writing it all down, and every address and name of anybody who said anything at this meeting, and and I went back and, and believe it or not, this is 1980, and we had computers then. There, there were these proto like with little green screens that mm-hmm. glowed, and the front of the screen was the city budget, was the list of all the stories that had been submitted to Clark Walworth, the city editor, and then it would have the word count that was on the screen. Okay, so I got back and I just wrote. I just unloaded my notes into this computer, and I, my piece was, you know, 6,580 words when it was finished. And I thought, huh, that's really good. Solid feature. That's solid, you know. <laughs> and my story is like the Prineville School Board budget meeting began at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> Present so, were. Real you know. narrative. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew what I was doing. And, and so I, I, I hit send, you know, and it. Bang, it appears on the on the front page of every computer in the building. And I was looking at the others, you know, and it would be like, uh, you know, my friend Mike Francis would have a sports story. and It would be 682 words. And I'd be like, ha, 682 words. Mine is 6,000 words. Obviously better, 10 times better. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. And, and all these stories were like under 1,000 words. And then there was mine. And so it was an afternoon paper. This is late at night. I, I hit send, and I, and I got up and got in my car and went home and go, went to bed. And then I came in the next morning. You could sleep in late if you worked a night story. So I walked in around 10 o'clock, and I'm 22 years old. And a ripple of laughter moved across the room when I entered the room. And I remember feeling that, that flop sweat again, just like I did at the dinner table with my sister. <laughs> and I was thinking, something is wrong, very, very wrong, and I'm at the center of it. And I went and sat down at my desk, and I was just kind of looking around, and everyone was clearly eyeballing me. And so Clark Walworth came over, and um, lovely man, and sat me down, and he said, do you, do you know what the inverted pyramid is? Do you know what, a, what the style of a newspaper story is? You know, the most important piece of news appears in the first paragraph, and then the second most important thing happens in the second paragraph, and so on. That way we can just cut from the bottom and still have a story. I was like, oh, that's ingenious. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> he handed me a book. He said, go read this. And, he, and then he, he showed me my story, and he said, I've edited it, and here's how it will appear in the paper. And it was one sentence long. <laughs> but it just said, the Brianville School Board Budget Committee met and authorized the, the, the spending of $684, the end. <laughs> and, and I went back to my chair, and I was like, I better read this book. I better figure this out. Hey, I want to pause things here. 
because I need to give you a word from our sponsor. And that sponsor is Audible. Max, how many audiobooks do they have nowadays? 250. I don't I don't even read that off of the script anymore because it just keeps swelling. It keeps blooming. They pretty much have every book that you could want, including many authors who have been on the show. Max, give me an example. Uh, last week, I talked to Catherine Schultz. She wrote a book called Being Wrong. That's on Audible. That's on Audible? Yeah. Wow. Anything you want is on Audible. They are the leading provider of spoken word content anywhere in the world. So I want you to go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. You'll get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook, and you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, Audible. Thanks also to Squarespace, our Ooh. friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way, the only way, the way. To put to, up a website. That's right, to put yeah. up a website, whether it's uh, for like a portfolio or your business or you just got some idea. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything with Squarespace just works. It's drag and drop. They've got these beautiful templates. I want to talk about one other thing about Squarespace. I have some firsthand, uh, firsthand experience. Tell me about it. Support. That's true. I uh, had a little. Uh, I got a little confused this week. There were <laughs> error, errors were made. They ended up being on my behalf, uh, but they got back to me in like two minutes. Yeah, and the and the customer support is twenty four seven. So if you like to make your websites at like three thirty in the morning, yes, you're good. Yes, you're um, good with Squarespace. You can go to squarespace.com. You can try it out for free. Set up your site. If you decide to make a purchase, put long form in the offer code box. You get ten percent off, and you will be supporting the show. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's Evan back with Jack Hit. Did you keep going through the newspaper ranks, or where did you go? I did. Well, you know, so understand, this is 1980. So, uh, you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein are only six years old at this point, right? Watergate is 74. So everybody in a newspaper building wants to be a reporter. Yeah. And I wanted to be a reporter because that's what everybody told me I wanted to be. I mean, that's what everybody that's what everybody was competing for. So I finally worked my way up to covering the city hall, and I was a cop reporter for a while. Actually went out on a murder call, very cool, and I, you know, I was just not very good at that. I was not very good at getting people who wanted to hide information from me to tell me that information. I was nervous whenever I was covering City Hall because I was constantly aware of the fact that there was just stuff I didn't know, and that I wasn't sure I could find out because I, I just wasn't very good at it. And then. Um, there was this wanky feature that everyone had to write at least once every so often, and it was called the personality profile. And it appeared on every Saturday paper on the front page for as long as I was there and years before. And it was just a profile of some curious person in the central Oregon area. Mm -hmm. And so I was finally sent out to do one of these, and I was asked to interview the oldest lady in, in the area, who was like 101 so I went to her house to have lunch, and she was unbelievably boring. I talked to her for two hours. I could not get this woman to crack a single quote that made any sense to me. Really uh, a painful, painful time, and I just remember thinking, what am I going to do with this? And at one point she said, you know, you don't really need to write all of this down. I said, really, why is that? She said, because I've written it all down. I've written a novel about my life from, you know, the time I was 16 until now. And I said, Really? She goes, I said, Did, have, you, have you published this? She goes, no, 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 I haven't published it. I haven't sent it to a publisher yet. I'm still writing it. I said, you're still writing the novel? I said, when did you start it? She said, when I was 16. <laughs> I said, you've been writing a novel since you were 16? Yes. Would you like to see it? I said, sure. So she took me back into a back room and opened a closet door, and there were boxes of pages of paper, all typed. 
thousands of pages of this book that she had written. So I was, wow, can I just sit here for a minute and look at this? She said, sure, read it as long as you like. And so I sat down, and then, of course, I had this amazing story. And when I got back, I wrote that up, and, and people seemed to like it. And um, at that point, I started trading off covering City Hall to all the other reporters who wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. Mm. And I realized, oh, I, I want to hang out with the old ladies and write that, those stories. I was so much more comfortable there than I was trying to figure out what was really happening at City Hall. And so I finally just sort of shifted out entirely and became a feature writer. And but th at that time, no one wanted to be a feature writer. Everybody wanted to be the you know the muckraker, the yeah. truth teller, the front page. That's where you wanted to be. You wanted to be on the front page. I would never be. I consigned myself to the back page. Like features that. were soft, right? Soft, soft news. news, boring. But I thought oh, if I could get one good line out of these, if I get one good quote out of these people, or one good paragraph, then I would be happy. You know, that was that's kind of what I wanted. Did you see? magazines as a place where you could do that work and start pitching magazines? Or how did you make that transition out of newspapers and into magazines and radio and the type of storytelling that you did? Well, I, was, I, I came to New York, uh, uh, so there's a bunch of little things, and I, I finally get to New York in 81, and um, uh, I literally didn't have enough money to leave. I landed here, and I had didn't have enough, I flew here from Europe, and I had no money to get out of town. So I went and slept on a friend's floor for a while. Took a couple of jobs to try to get my way back home to Charleston. And for the you know 15 or so years that I lived in New York, I would always tell people I'm, I'm trying to make enough money to get out of town. That's my <laughs> that's my goal. Um, I, I was a proofreader at a publishing house that published um, information about foundation grants, that uh, known as the Foundation Center. It's a little mm -hmm. tiny, you know, sort of like a, a niche publishing thing. And um, and so I was proofreading this, and and one of the one of the grants was the Scripps Howard Fellowship for continuing education for reporters and writers, um, and it gave you this big pile of money, and all you had to do was write a funny essay. So I wrote an essay, and I won, and then I went to Columbia Journalism School. By the way, I have a quote from you about Columbia Journalism School, which indicates that you didn't learn that much, because I found this story in the Washington <laughs> Monthly from 1981. Uh-oh, what did I where say? Where they're talking. It's like one of these stories. I think it's like a perennial thing, probably, like uh -huh. stories about whether journalism school is worth it. And it's so expensive. And uh, it says, they were such baby courses, says Jack Hitt, a 1981 graduate. Imagine sitting in a room and being taught to read again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Let me just let me just say this about that, as Richard Nixon would say. So at that time, the journalism school was a little confused because they had complete newbies, and then they also accepted people who had already written for newspapers and magazines, uh -huh. right? So you had this mix. So I remember the, my first class, Reporting One Hundred and One. That's literally what it was called. R and W One. You know, you would have people who didn't know how, who didn't know what the inverted pyramid was. So if you did know anything about writing a newspaper story, you did have to go back to square one and just work up with the rest of the class mm -hmm. for that. And so that was kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very different school now. But at that time in the early eighties, Ronald, I had never published anything outside of my newspaper articles, and. And Ronald Reagan was going to uh, create a, uh, a disclosure agreement that every government employee would have to sign. That was the, that was the news. And this included the military. So this is like five and a half million people would suddenly be deprived of their First Amendment rights to publish anything without government approval, right? And of course, the First Amendment only really says one thing. Congress shall make no law. The government shall not 
abridged freedom of the speech or of the it's press. Actually, the most right. direct yeah. abridgment of freedom of exactly. speech. Exactly. So have. this was literally the government saying, like, we are going to abridge all of these people's free speech rights. Um, and so it was a big controversy at the time, and people were writing essays about it. And Anthony Lewis had, you know, one op-ed after another, column after another, complaining about, you know, oh my God, this is the this is the end of Western civilization, and the ACLU was, you know, you know, up in arms, and so on. And I just happened to be reading. Uh, I had a book that I'd read uh, the year before by Vince Marchetti, which was a, he was a CIA agent. And when you're in the CIA, that was the only in, in bureau in the government at the time that did have these kinds of confidentiality agreements or, you know, pre-publication uh, clearance agreements w- was the CIA mm-hmm. and only, I think only field agents. And so Marchetti had written a book and they had vetted it and blacked out all these things and he published it with the blackouts in it. You can still buy this paperback and it's just these huge black chunks that are taken out. And so I thought, oh, well, so it's already happened in this little small place and why don't I just call Vince Marchetti and find out what it's like to be an American trying to write a story about your life in the government when you live under this pre-publication clearance agreement, right? So I found him, and I called him up, and um, and we had a great conversation, and it was amazing what he said, you know? And then he told me about another guy, I can't remember his name, but so I had two, two CIA agents who were willing to talk on the record about being uh, censored. By the, and, and just the stupid stuff that they censored, mm-hmm. the kinds of things that they would take out, and how it very quickly devolves from like national security secrets into like, you know, we just don't think you should say things like that, you know, and so all sorts of like you know, petty blackouts and so on, and mm-hmm. so it quickly it turned into exactly what you know the founding fathers didn't want to happen, right? Government often devolves into these tyrannical and petty bureaucratic uses of power, right? Um, just ask the TSA. So I, I wrote a letter to Spencer Claw, who was then the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review. And I just said, you know, I'm, I, I've talked to these two guys and this is like a window into this story and they can explain exactly what it's like to live under this kind of agreement here in America, and, you know, I want that letter to just sing. So I went over that letter for days. I must have typed it 10 times. You know, this is pre-computer even. I did have a computer at a Capro 4. And, um, and so, uh, but I finally, I get this letter out. And I remember mailing it on a Monday morning. And Tuesday morning, Spencer Claw called me. It was that fast. And I was so blown away. It's like when, he, when, when I answered the phone and it was Spencer Claw. You know, the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, I was staggering around the apartment, you know, and he said, this is a great story idea, and I want you to write it immediately. And how fast can you write it? And this is what we'll pay you. And, you know, it was some, it was a real sum of money. Yeah. And I said, oh, you know, I'll have it to you by the end of the week. And he said, fantastic. You know, and so uh, I hung up the telephone. I was like, wow, is it really that easy? I mean, do you, you just write a letter to somebody at a magazine and then they call you up and hire you? <laughs> I mean, really, the stars came out at this point. Uh, I, I just couldn't believe it was that, like, it was, it, it, I, you know, I, I, I can only think of like a like a carpenter making a beautiful chair and setting it out on the road and somebody coming by and saying, like, we'll pay you $500 for that chair. And they would just be, oh, well, wow, you know, I just... <laughs> Made it with my tools, you know, um, and I felt I felt that kind of exhilaration of like, um, oh my god, I just thought up this idea in this little apartment and banged out this little letter, and now I'm going to get paid. 
th- that to me was like magic. Uh-huh. And I still occasionally get that sensation. Really? You know, it's really a great feeling. It was like, wow, I just thought that up, and now they're going to give me money to go do that. So um, with that, I just I uh, okay, okay, so I can do this uh, thing. And I started refining. It took me a long time to figure out how a pitch worked, a pitch letter. And so now I, you know, I've 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 taught classes at several of our, including Columbia, about uh, writing a pitch letter. And I really enjoy working with writers because I feel like one of the hardest parts of writing, before you even get to the writing part, one of the hardest things is to take a kind of vague idea in your head and, and get it out of there and onto a piece of paper that somebody else can read and think, oh, I see what you find so cool about this story. Uh-huh. You know, That was really a hard thing for me to figure out how to do. And it often required, you know, just more and more reporting. I mean, there's all sorts of ways we could talk about this. But, you know, there's all sorts of ways of trying to figure out how to make that story just sing on the page. So that but when you, by the time you send that pitch letter into the uh, editor, you know, they can't wait to say yes. Yeah. Right. That's, that was, the, and that's what I slowly started getting better and better at. I realized, like, why they were saying no. And then I became an editor. This is much later at Harper's Magazine. And I, and I had to say no. And that was really instructive. One of the best ways to learn how to write is to edit. Not your own writing, somebody else's writing. Edit and shape. And I mean, really, to go inside somebody else's sentences, is it's a very invasive thing to do. Um, and you learn to be very respectful when you're inside someone else's prose. But when you were at Harper's, had you had already been writing for magazines for a while before you went? I got hired... Uh, in part because of a piece I'd pitched and written at the uh, Washington Monthly uh-huh. about creation science. Uh-huh. So they had excerpted a part of it and published it in their reading section. Eric Etheridge, who was an editor there, asked me out to lunch just to meet me. And we just started talking about magazine ideas. He goes, wow, you should really come in and talk to the other editors. So I came in and talked to Michael Pollan and then Lewis Lapham. Where was Na- this? That's 1987. Uh-huh. And then I went home uh, that afternoon thinking, wow, that was great. I, I you know, They really want me to pitch... Um, more articles uh, to them. I was really thrilled that Harper's would even, you know, consider taking one of my pitches. And then actually the next day Lewis called and he said, uh, hey, I, I'd like you to become a, be a senior editor. I was like, what? Uh, okay. So then I worked at Harper's for well, almost five years. And why did you not stay on an editor? Like you could presumably have stayed unless... Even while I was there, I was writing articles outside of there. And I always recommend that. Editors should always write. I think, it, I think it's important to feel the humiliation of the of what's happening on the other side, <laughs> as well as uh, you know, implemented. <laughs> now, do you? If when I'm looking back at the stories, like I f- I was reading this story from Esquire, actually won the Livingston mm-hmm. Award. You mm-hmm. and Paul Tuff, yeah, writing about hackers in like the early '90s, like '91 right. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Looking at that and recent stories, you seem like a consummate like generalist, if that's a way to put it. Like, the range of these stories is extremely wide from from mm-hmm. my perspective. But I was wondering, from your perspective, do you feel that way? Or do you feel like, to you, all of these stories have something in common or have th- certain threads that you are always looking for, or always chasing? Yeah, I don't think they have a whole lot in common. I kind of wish I weren't a generalist. There's a lot more money to be made in job security or financial security if you specialize a little bit, because then you get you know, has to give speeches and there's all sorts of ways in which you can sort of uh, take what you've already done and turn that into more money making. Uh, and and I, I hate to, I don't, I don't want to sound like a money grubber, but um, but as a fine, if you're a freelancer, 
you're constantly, you know, I'm I'm in town talking to you today in part because yesterday I was here hustling my way, you know, up and down Sixth Avenue. <laughs> well, that's something I probably a lot of people who would listen to this who know your right. work would right. assume that people just call you up and say, "What do you got? Like, we we want to get Jack Hit to write another story for us." That they they're they're coming to you. I prefer to pitch. Why is that? Well, uh, let me just be frank. So when an editor has an idea, they have that idea in their head. They have it kind of finished. I mean, they know what they want. And part of the fun of reporting is finding out uh, how the story is not at all what you anticipated it to be. And if I could say anything to uh, any starting writer, the pitch is one thing. The pitch is a, is a prospectus. It is, it is the possibility of this story. Now, you don't present it that way. You present it as like, I got this down. This is rock solid. I know this story from beginning to end. That is the tone. That is the certainty that you're – because you're selling certainty as much as story, right? You're selling like, I've got this. Editor, you don't have to sweat this. All you have to do is call me up and say, yes, yes. Here's some expense money. Here's the fee. Let's go do this story, right? But every story ends up being not quite what you thought it was, right? And there's a kind of terrifying moment when you are out reporting the story that you've pitched that you said you knew back and forth, up and down, rock solid – and finding out it's not quite what you thought it was, mm-hmm. right? That's a really unnerving moment. Uh, it's taken me a long time to realize that that's where all the fun is. So if an editor has a story idea, you're going to go out and you're going to climb inside this story. You're going to interview people, get on the street, talk to th- people, and you're going to find out it's not quite the story that the editor thought it was. And you often, I find that I'm, I often lock horns when I get back and I've got my draft and they're like, well, no, we were expecting the story that we assigned. And I was like, yeah, but you asked me to go look at this, and I'm, I'm, I've come back, and it's this other story. Not quite the story you thought it was. It's this other story. I think it's just as cool. Yeah. They often don't think it's just as cool. So if you pitch a story, you kind of have control of, like, that possibility of that story. You know, and so let me just can I just throw out one example? Yes. I, I love this story. Um, I, I, I this I pitched this to Harper's many years ago. Um, I had read that there was a lawsuit of one of these horrible, super fun, toxic pit, you know, cleanup lawsuits that had actually started in like the late 50s. And when I got to it, it was the late 90s and it was still going on. You know, like 30 years of lawsuits. And it was, and there were hundreds of plaintiffs and hundreds of defendants, okay? And so the state of California built a special courthouse just for this lawsuit, you know, to have bleachers for all the lawyers because there were hundreds of lawyers on either side, right? And so this was your classic sort of like um, class action lawsuit where this whole little town, Santa Ana, claimed to have been poisoned by this toxic waste that had been. Uh, put in an old rock quarry, mm-hmm. right? It was called the Stringfellow Acid Pits. That's back in the day when they used to name things for what they were. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't covering up what was happening no, here. This wasn't the uh, you know the Springdale Waste Treatment uh, you know arena, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Evergreen. Um, no, no, uh, this was the Stringfellow Acid Pits. Um, and so, uh, you know, I went out there knowing that uh, I had pitched it as a travel story. So what I said was, look, they've built a courthouse. Uh, People live in this town who just work on this lawsuit, and they've been living there for 30 years. You know, there are these lawyers who have their entire career 
is defined by this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So I said, I just want to, I don't want to do the lawsuit because I don't do lawsuit stories, but I, 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 I just want to go to this town like the New York Times travel section would send you to Paris for the weekend, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, Paris in 48 hours, you know? It's like, Stringfellow acid pits in 48 hours. <laughs> that, that was, that's the way I pitched this. Like, that'll be the way in, okay? And so I went out there with the presumption, of course, that like this was your classic class action lawsuit, which is that all these people in town, the 3,000 or so, it was 5,000 or so um, plaintiffs, and then there were about 350 or, or so defendants, companies that had dumped crap into this hole, uh-huh. okay? So I get out there, and I'm talking to the the, the people in Santa Ana, the, the, the townspeople who are harmed and whatnot, and it took me a while, but I spent like three days like going from one interview to the next, and they all had like different you know, ailments. Like one would say, like, you know, my fingers are tingly all the time. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, okay, that's bad, you know. And another one would say, like, you know, all my children are not doing well in school. And I was like, okay, is that a, is that a thing that the acid pits caused? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not clear. One guy said that, you know, he, he, um, he had vertigo. And no two complaints matched. And I thought, how do you I thought it's like all, everybody has leukemia or something. You know, I, mm-hmm. I just figured, you know, I thought it was all like, you know, everybody has the same cancer. That's how you, you know, define the cluster or whatever. And so all of a sudden I realized, well, this lawsuit's kind of, it's, it's wrong. Something's wrong. And it's not fitting the, the, the story, you know, the injured townspeople and the evil companies, you know. And so I kept talking to people. And then, and then I began, to, when I talked to the leadership of the townspeople, did they really seemed evasive and kind of sketchy. Uh, they didn't really want to talk too much about how the pollutants in the pit got into their bloodstreams and how it affected everybody because there wasn't any vector, as they say, between the acid pits and the town, really. Uh-huh. It was just there. Uh-huh. And so then I started talking to the defense side, and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, giant – it wasn't, you know, uh, some corporation out of a movie. You know, it wasn't giant corp dumping there. It was like the local – you know, sort of auto mechanic would dump his, you know, old oil in the pits in the 50s. Well, you know, I looked into it. I was like, well, that was legal at the time, and they weren't doing anything wrong. And so, and all these companies, as they were described, were just like these small town manufacturers, you know, people had small plants or whatever. And the law at the time made it legal to put this dump into stuff pit. into this pit. And they were all frantic, you know, for 30 years they've been paying lawyers, these, these small companies, right? And so slowly but surely, I realized that, like, the whole lawsuit was backwards. Like, the victims were the small companies, and the crazy people were looking for a payday. And I freaked out because I I just, this is going to, you know, this is totally, you know, wrong. And so I called my editor, who happened to be Paul Tuff, actually, my my co-op. He, he, was, he was now at Harper. So, but he, he was great, you know, because I was in a cold sweat again, worried that the story just wasn't going to work out, um, that this was going to completely script the story. He said, no, this sounds great. You know, like, like, go and just keep finding out more about that. And I'd never had a story turn inside out quite like that. Mm-hmm. But that turned out to be a great story. I, I remember thinking of Don DeLillo's white noise, you know, with the big toxic cloud that just sort of sits, you know, metaphorically <laughs> above the town. And 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 that was what the Stringfellow Acid Pits was to this town. You know, the, like, yeah, their children hadn't gotten into the right schools. They hadn't, you know, their job hadn't worked out. Their their careers had kind of, like, gone off the tracks. Their marriages had failed. Uh, you know, their property values didn't increase as well as the town over. That was a big factor, actually. 
actually. So there was a lot more going on than toxic waste dumps. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the dump, which is hideous, but you know, it was totally contained. Um, the EPA runs a monitoring system there. It's never, you know, they have pumps all around it in case there are leaks and all this stuff. You know, it's a kind of a monument to sort of modern pollution in a way. That's the way I describe it at the end of the piece. You know, one of the things you have to trust when you're a writer is that, like, you know, the, the reason you got interested in this thing, this this character, this issue, this story, this narrative, this whatever it is, you have to trust your gut that there, that the story is there. It, it, it's weird. It may not be the story you first thought it was. And I find this all the time. And I still get anxiety in my gut. I feel it in my stomach. Like, oh, that character that I thought was going to say X, Y, and Z denies that. But then then you realize, okay, so so where the story is kind of veering out of control, kind of that's where you go. You know, the, the, the troubling parts of the story are the story. How do you feel about the sort of like larger changes in the magazine industry? I mean, it's interesting because I feel like the magazine industry has gone in a certain direction and we could talk about that. But at the same time, there's all this audio storytelling now. Like This American Life used to be just the only thing that did that. Mm-hmm. And now there's so many people trying to do some version of that. I mean, don't you think that the problem for journalism of the last uh, 10 or 15 years is not a problem of journalism. It's a problem of advertising, mm-hmm. right? So I remember when I was at Harper's, uh, Harper's was founded in 1850 by the Harper brothers, same as the Harper Collins, uh, you know, and Harper Bazaar. That's all the same you know, family 150 years ago. The press was down once a month, I think, for four days. Uh, I'm making that up, but something like that. The printing press for the mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to use it. And so they just printed excerpts of upcoming books and then gave it away. And it became an abolitionist magazine later. It's been through many, 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 in, you know, incarnations. I, so I started looking when I was there, you know, with there's a complete set of the magazine uh, bound in the library. And I, I remember going back to issue one and, and just kind of like leafing forward and reading through it. And I was shocked to find that like advertising didn't appear until like the 1880s, 1890s. You know, nothing, not a thing. But then when it does appear, it's clear why it appears, which is that railroads had made it so that merchandise could come into a town and get sold to people who didn't know anything about it. Right, so most people bought their horseshoes from the smithy, whom they knew personally. They bought their vegetables from the farmer. They bought their clothes from the general store dude who was right there. Right, So there was a personal connection to everything you purchased. But with the railroad, suddenly there was like merchandise coming into town. It was maybe a little cheaper than the guy in your, in your village. And certainly the variety increased, but you didn't know anything about it. So you had to be convinced that this was good. And so when you look at that first advertising, it's clear those early advertisers uh, are trying to convince you to trust this foreign thing that's coming into your village. And then once the car, so 1880s, 1890s, the car becomes a huge driver of advertising. And really what the 20th century and part of the 21st century were was the, the great flowering of mass market advertising. And now it has died. But that doesn't really have anything to do with journalism. We fed off of that. We lived off of that. We dined off of that. And it was our financing. But it wasn't our journalism. It wasn't storytelling. It wasn't narrative. It wasn't good writing. It was, you know, that is still happening. It's just happening in other places. And, yeah, the the lucrative – I'll make all the younger writers crazy here. But, like, 
Men's Journal once sent me to the Seychelles with my wife for 10 days to write a 250-word review. Of what? Of the Seychelles. You can go read it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember after we got back, I was like... I'm not sure that's ever going to happen again. <laughs> you actually got the last assignment. I think The so. last travel 250-word oh, assignment. Know, let me just say, to my defense, that's the only one of those I ever got, but I have many friends who would do that every year. Some, some magazine would send them some crazy place to write 500 words, you know. But, you know, money was flush, and advertising was everywhere, and then it went away. I think the first bubble that snaps is, you know, in the late Clinton years. Uh, and then, of course, the the Bush bubble of 2007 and eight, yeah. uh, when that goes down. But there was a time. Yeah, it, there was a time. But do you, <laughs> have you gone through periods of freaking out about it? Like, do you, because you're purely, yeah. you're freelance. So do you feel like it? it's something you, concerns you? Or you feel like yeah, journalism finds a way, stories find a way? Well, they do find a way. But, you know, I, I especially in the in the late 2000s, there were a lot of things that, we all had to do that for a lot less pay, right? I mean, there's no question that the financing behind journalism is very different than it was 20 years ago. Very yeah. different. But, you know, look, you know, podcasting has been this sort of wild west of of narrative uh, in the last, you know, uh, five years. And it's been glorious, right? And some of it has made money and, and so on. You know, so like journalism is fine. The financing of journalism may not be so good. <laughs> it's It's like saying, you know, Music failed when when AM radio collapsed in the 80s, you know. Uh, no, talk radio took over and, you know, a new format for and, – and music found another place, right? And then iTunes happened and then music found another place. And there was a time when, you know, the three networks and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal basically controlled the narrative of our political discourse. That's all sort of, you know, sprung loose and – there are many thousands now of, you know, pipes delivering information. And I mean, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why we're, you know, dealing with the Donald Trumps of the world and so on. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not being nostalgic for the old time. I'm just because I I've always lived more or less unemployed in in these markets and and happily so. I mean, I do think I think being unemployed keeps you a little more sharp in terms of looking for stories. It never gets any easier. That motivation and that desperation, whatever you want to call that, is still very much behind many of the conversations I have uh, all day long, yeah. trying to you know find those threads, those strings, right, that are going to pull together and, and, and turn into something. So I can't let you go without mm-hmm. asking you how your relationship with This American Life came about, because there's so many of those of my favorite This American Life mm-hmm. stories, like Dawn is one of my favorite This American mm-hmm. Life stories. The Nauru story is, mm-hmm. I feel like, a classic. <laughs> Fiasco, obviously. We talked about the super. Like, all these stories. Can you tell me a little bit about how, how just how that came about and what your relationship has been over the years? Yeah. So I, I, I met Ira, at, uh, I think, in the 1992 Democratic Convention in, in uh, Des Moines. Huh. I remember walking into this hotel uh, restaurant, and all the journalists were there. And they were all like drinking. They were like eating steaks and drinking like big tumblers of bourbon. And Jack Germond was there, and it just it looked like the bar scene and the you know Star Wars thing. Yeah, that's not my thing. And uh, and and then there was Ira sitting at the at the bar, you know, eating a sandwich or something. And I knew of him because he was an education reporter for WBEZ at that time. Huh. So we met and talked, and uh, 
Man, we had a couple encounters after that. And then at one point, he was passing through New Haven, and we had uh, lunch. And he said, I'm thinking of starting a new radio show. And it's just going to be stories. There'll be stories. You know, at that point, you know, public radio sort of the, the stories tended to be, you know, three to five minutes. And they had a kind of format, you know, that had to be kind of um, acknowledged or, you know, lived by. And uh, he said, you know, I, I'm just thinking of doing longer stories. They don't have to be newsy, um, but just, you know, stories that are interesting and, and, and you know, have an arc. And do you have anything? And I said, well, you know, it's funny. I've been, uh, this is a story that I used to tell when I was a kid, and I'm not even sure it's true. You know, I lived next door to this novelist when I was nine years old named Gordon Langley Hall. And one day he disappeared and came back as a woman and became Dawn Langley Hall. And I think she was the first American or second transsexual. And we didn't even know what that word was then, you know. I said, but the thing is, is she then she married a black man a year later, and that was against the law in South Carolina at that time. And she went to court. They went to court. Uh, John Paul Simmons was his name. And they overturned the miscegeny laws in South Carolina. And then a year later, they had a baby, uh, which was a subject of great discussion in all the newspapers and television stations around the world. And you know, TV trucks were on our streets for years, off and on, you mm-hmm. know, as this story kept going. And then someone tried to light her house on fire, and she was driven out of town. And she disappeared when I was in high school. And I said, you know, I, I used to tell that story all the time, and then I just stopped telling it because I'm not even sure any of it's true. I can't, you know, it, it all happened when I was like 9, 10, and 11. And uh, and I said, a story like that, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, why don't you go find her, and that'll be the story. And it took me a while, but I did. I did find her, and, uh, and I'm still thrilled by that story. All right, Jack, thank you so much for doing this. Great, Evan. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks for listening. In fact, thanks for listening to any of the 200 episodes that we have managed to complete. Uh, We're as surprised as anyone that we've actually done 200 episodes. And thanks to Jack Hitt, who was a fantastic guest for a 200th episode. And as always, we appreciate our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, Audible, Squarespace, and as always, MailChimp. And we'll see you next week for number 201. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.